You're listening to Notes from Norwich. This plays in exactly to chapter 19 with the whole thing of repentance versus (laughs) willing choice. (laughs) This is like... I am eager to hear your thoughts. Oh, so Should we just jump in right there? (laughs) Yes. Welcome to the latest episode of Notes from Norwich, where we are diving right into repentance and choice and Pelagianism and sin and all the crap that's going on in the world today. I don't know if crap is one of the words that iTunes censors for, so maybe I'll just beat myself and everyone will wonder what I said. Nothing worse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jay Nkoshi. I'm uh, the second host, and I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Marguerite Kirkhoff, and I'm the third host, and I live in Apple Valley, Minnesota. Did I actually say that I'm Chris? You did not. First host? You're just the mystery man. Yeah. (laughs) There's, it's not a ranking of hosts. We are, uh, we, we are just numbering ourselves for convenience. This uh, is episode nine, right? Episode, oof, episode nine. Wow. So we were talking right before we started the episode, and then we just said we we're just going to begin, because we were talking about all this heaviness that's going on in the world around us and how we respond to it, and if it is within our power as humans— to just decide to be the people we want to be, or if it's, or if that's too much for us. So this leads us right into chapter nineteen. But wait, that's getting ahead we of get ourselves. To, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about eighteen, nineteen, and twenty today. So, uh, so where shall we begin? <laughs> well, she starts with Our Lady Saint Mary, which I think is. Uh, fascinating and delightful um, that the Blessed Virgin pops up just little mentions here and there. Um, but like her feast days throughout the liturgical year. Exactly. Yeah. He's just like, Oh, it's another Marian feast day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this chapter is about this concept of wanting of being one to Christ which is, I think, one of the most iconic concepts out of Julian. Like, many people, if they, if they know much about Julian beyond the all shall be well, it'll probably be this concept of wanting, though I don't know that many of yeah. us actually understand it that well. So wh- how would you define wanting? Is it just, is it the same as being united to? I think etymologically, yes. Um, but I think there's a reason we don't translate it united or being united to, um, there is a, I think she is, she's speaking to this ontological reality of being, um, knit together that, I think we've we've lost in our connotations of the word united. Um, and so this talking about it as wanting kind of makes it strange enough for us to examine, okay, what does this word actually mean? And this is um, this profound um, 
identification between self and other. Um, I think when I, when I hear being united with um, in a, in a generic context, I kind of think of togetherness, like two things together. Um, But I think Julian's speaking of a union that is much more fundamental, much more profound that um, a, a total identification with, um, and it is in her eyes the essence of natural love that is this ontological knitting. What struck me is how she talks about how we are one with Christ in his pain. And she says, all created things that could suffer pain suffered with him. That is to say, all created things that God has made for our services, for our service, the firmament and the earth failed for sorrow in their nature at the time of Christ's dying. For it belongs naturally to their character to know him for their God in whom all their strength is situated. So she is talking about the sky and the earth and all created things like animals and plants because they were created for us as suffering with Christ in his passion. And that just, that, that struck me as something that's very, very strong because it, it, de- it develops from creation because God created everything. And so naturally everything is always one with God. So then when God became man as Jesus and suffered and died, all creation also suffered with Jesus on the cross. I think that that point of always being one with God um, is going to be key um, because this is not something, this is, this is our, our preexisting condition. This is um, the, this, this flows out of the foundation of our being. It belongs naturally, not only to the firmament and nature's character, but this is part of being that we are one to God. And I think as she develops her theology of sin, that needs to always be in the background for us that she sees us with all creation as being one with God from eternity. And that that's, that's the backdrop. Um, That it's, it's, it's not a, it's well, it's, it's something that we have by nature of God being the ground of our existence. So the mirror image of this is uh, that I've, I've told the two of you. I don't. I, I assume I've mentioned it on the podcast as well. I'm I'm starting in on the spiritual exercises, and just in the last few days, I've been given to meditate on um, both Psalm eight mm. and um, the creation story in Genesis. <clears throat> And the fruit that I've pulled out of both of those is that 
um, all of creation of its nature sings the praises of the creator. Um, we're told that at several places in scripture, you know, Psalm 150 or whatever it is. One, one of the, uh, the praise Psalms, 147, 148, 149, 150, somewhere in there, it talks about, you know, the mountains, the hills, the uh, everything that is sings the praises of God. But what makes humanity uniquely blessed out of all creation is that we are aware that we're singing praise to God. While the birds in my backyard, because I was doing this, you know, this Lectio Divina sitting under my brand new uh, uh, patio umbrella out in my backyard watching these birds fly around, is that while the birds naturally sing the praises of the Creator, and I sometimes encourage myself to sing the praises of the Creator, what advantage that I have as a human being is that I can be aware that I'm singing praise to the Creator while the birds just do it. The angels just do it. The mountains, the, you know, oceans, the firmament, earth, they just naturally sing praise to the Creator, but they don't, they're not aware that they're doing it. That seems to be the unique gift that's given uh, to humanity, the ability to reflect on and to be kind of conscious of our relationship, which, of course, the side effect of that is that it also means that we can choose to a certain extent to what degree we participate in that. So this, what Julian is saying here, is like the other side of that, that I was meditating on how I'm aware that I can be singing praise to the Creator, the, the mirror of that is that all of creation suffers when Christ is suffering. But some of that creation, the people who love Jesus, are able to know that they are suffering because Jesus is suffering, while the rest of creation is just suffering. The firmament and the earth, all that they're aware is that there's this feeling of pain or this feeling of lack, or this feeling of of um, the wonders and marvels, the sorrows and fears that St. Denis of France apparently feels, which is, we'll get, we'll get to that, St. Denis of France, and uh, whether Julian knows what she's talking about or not. <laughs> or or if she's, she's a product of her time, and that's what everyone thought, that Dennis of France and Dennis the Areopagite were the same person. We'll get to that. But yeah, so I think it's, you know, um, all of creation has this connection with God that is, you know, the source of our existence is that we are, we are, we, everything that exists exists because it's sustained in the love of God. So when Christ is killed, that pain ripples throughout the whole creation. It can't not. And but some of us are aware of it. I think that's it's a very profound insight for uh, for her to make. And I think some of us are aware of it being in terms of God, because I, I think part of what she's getting at with Pilate and Saint Denis is that 
they're they're aware of it too um they don't understand the frame in which to they don't have the framework in which to understand what's actually going on which is this um kind of cosmic moment of you catastrophe good catastrophe um but that they they're still aware of it um and i think about not to get too topical but as i've been um interacting with people around the the violence going on and the renewed understanding of racism that people are having i i see sort of an analog that people um people are aware that something is not right like fundamentally broken with the world and they they feel that pain even if they lack what i as part of the church see as the the right the framework for understanding that brokenness and pain there is i think an analogous uh analogous to pilot and saint denis an awareness that i'm seeing in people of something fundamentally broken something fundamentally out of joint um that lines up i think with what we as the church are seeing as this profound sin of racism and its attendant idols and so it's um similarly it it can't help but ripple out beyond beyond those who have immediate sight of it um the awareness of that brokenness of that pain is rippling out so i'm seeing that uh that kind of dynamic right now in conversations i'm having with people outside the church um and i i think it's fair to kind of tie that back to what julian's describing here that there there is something fundamental in our being that is attuned to this kind of brokenness and things being out of joint whether we have the language to understand it or not let's talk about pilot and saint denis uh because she just kind of drops these two in here. I And I mean two manner of folk. I mean of two manner of folk. As it can be understood by two persons. The one was Pilate. The other was St. Denis of France, who was at that time a pagan. For when he saw the wonders and marvels, the sorrows and fears that happened at that time, he said, either the world is now at an end, or else he that is maker of nature is suffering. Wherefore, he did write on an altar, this is the altar of the unknown God. So who are these two characters that she's just brought in? Well, the St. Denis, um, she's referring to Dionysus, if I'm saying his name correctly, the Areopagite, from Acts, Acts uh, 17, yeah, Acts, Acts 17, where he is converted in, uh, in Acts 17 to Christianity, um, where Paul talks about seeing an altar art, um, you know, the unknown God. And, 
and and whether 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 Dionysus himself had written that on the altar or not, it's not clear to me from reading Acts, but um, Julian is conflating that character with St. Denis Saint-Denis of France, the patron saint of France, who had some um, big remark at the time of, a, of, a, of an eclipse, of a solar eclipse, where he said something like, either the world is ending or God is coming or something like that. And, and so she just, she's kind of putting those two characters together um, because they both had these big moments, I guess, of cosmic awareness. And so she puts them together for that reason, either mistakenly or intentionally unclear to me a hundred percent. So she's talking about these, this, She's talking about these big, uh, these big moments of understanding that these two individuals had. So that's that. Those two, they had apparently been conflated for a few centuries by that point. Saint Denis, Ah, okay. Dionysius the Areopagite. They had apparently, you know, in some apocryphal writing that was floating around in eleventh century France or something. Sure. That that had had been kind of a mistaken interpretation. So uh, I guess it doesn't surprise me that um, that would have made it to Norwich in Julian's time. But what of Pilate? So this is Pontius Pilate, obviously, who was the one who presided over uh, Jesus's execution. So why is he a character in this reflection of hers? Great. You were saying something about Father John Julian's commentary that you learned. Right. Um, Father John Julian Swanson, the founder of the Order of Julian of Norwich, um, has a commentary. And he, um, in it, he has an appendix which goes through the whole story of, of how Pilate's character was embellished um, in the centuries after, you know, after the crucifixion, after the passion, to such an extent that, I mean, there were so many apocryphal uh, stories about him, about how he repented, about how he tried, he he took his life, about how when he was buried, the ground threw him back out. Um, His his mode in the story, in, in the biblical story of Jesus' trial, is so iffy. I mean, he's, he seems very, um, at one, sometimes he seems like a really bad guy, and sometimes he seems like it's the product of circumstances. And so I think Julian is looking at him, too, as someone who has this massive cosmic understanding that he certainly, he pilot, was not able to deal with successfully at all. And so that's who, that's why I think he's, he's in there. Um, Father JJ also says that all these stories about Pilate would have been part of the um, passion plays that Julian would have seen every single year constantly from the time she was born, you know, until forever, because that was, that was a main way of communicating um, religious truth to the people. So 
basically, I guess what I'm saying is two big cosmic revelational moments, revelatory moments for two individuals. Which produce, it seems, kind of contrasting responses. It sounds like from what you're saying, Pilate's response to this awareness of the cosmic distress is to despair. And St. Dennis's is to have a conversion experience. Um, so maybe that's what she's doing here is like, she's saying, okay, well, here is this, um, here is this knowledge that all creation has by virtue of being one to God. And in the case of humans, this is the kind of, these are the two kinds of responses that that awareness can engender. Hmm. To me, I thought that the four of them mentioned in this chapter represent a spectrum. So Our Lady, who knows Jesus as man and God, despairs at his passion. The creation that includes the mountains and the chipmunks and the duck that wandered through my yard. Check my Facebook for the latest video of of the duck that wandered into my yard right before we started recording. The creation... Um, feels the pain of the passion, even though it doesn't know what it's feeling. It just knows suffering. And then Pilate, who can see the man suffering and knows what it means to, to condemn somebody to death and somehow must feel moved um, by an awareness of what it means to destroy a human life. And and St. Dennis Dionysius, the Areopagite, knows that something cosmically is happening, but he doesn't know Jesus. He just knows that somehow something is happening in the world that is divine, divine suffering. So between the four of them, they cover the whole spectrum to, to know God and man, to know the man but not the God, to know God but not the man, and to not know but just to feel, to sense the loss. It's like they cover the whole spectrum in this chapter. And that just occurred to me as I was trying to sort through it myself. I love that. <laughs> and I think that actually um, it that lines up with what I'm, I'm looking now and I'm seeing the kind of structure that she has in this, um, par- this chapter. And that lines up um, at the dead center, she says, and thus they, they that were his friends suffered pain for love. And then she turns, and universally all, that is to say, they that knew him not. So she's, yeah, I think that that pans out. There's this start with Our Lady, talk about nature, then Pilate, who she gives one line to, presumably because everybody knew what was up there, and then St. Dennis. Oh, I love that. It's good. We all stand in this kind of pain with him and shall do until we come to his bliss, as I shall say later. So that's her fortist. So when God dies, everyone feels it, even if they don't know what they're feeling. But you can't yes. you can't not because it's not about what I am aware of, but about my connection to the whole source of life itself. 
Yes. Not just not yes. for me personally. I don't matter in the grand scheme of things, but the whole of creation when it's cut off from the power supply, all the lights flicker. You yes. know. Yes. So I find that very comforting because it takes me out of the picture in terms of what I can do. Because yeah, the I, things that the things that happen with God are out of my out of my reach. Thank goodness. So how do we tie this together with that observation from earlier that Christ is eternally in his passion? That Jesus died on the cross, you know, two thousand years ago, but the notion that God is Suffering for the sake of creation is an eternal thing. I think that gets to, you know, this idea of it rippling out. Um, There is this idea that all of time, all of creation um, comes out from this this point, this point of God dying, and points back to this point of God dying. Um, that we today, as America is being ripped apart, for better or worse, are feeling that same the ripples of that same disturbance that Pilate and St. Dennis and Our Lady and creation felt that ought to point us back to the cross, which is sort of the epicenter, the, this epicenter of this moment that ends up being kind of eternal because all of creation, all of history turns in on itself to to meet at that moment. Does that make any sense? I feel like I'm babbling. It makes per- it makes perfect sense, and it it it's borne out in in chapter in the next chapter, chapter nineteen, when we're talking about focusing on the cross. Mm. Do you all know the the motto of the Carthusian monastic order? Stat crux dum volvitur orbis. Uh, the cross is steady while the world is turning. And it's their, their, the logo of their order is, is the cross with the globe of the world underneath it. And the metaphor is that, you know, the cross is the axis around which the whole world turns. Um, so that just popped into my mind as, as we turn our attention to, to chapter 19. Yeah. Where, Julian returns her attention and and ours to the cross. At this time, I wished to look up from the cross, and I dared not. For I was well aware that while I gazed on the cross, I was secure and safe. The cross stands while the world turns. This is one of my favorite bits. It's just...
I answered inwardly with all the powers of my soul and said, no, I cannot look, look away from the cross, look up from the cross for thou art my heaven. And so then she says in just a bit, so I was taught to choose Jesus for my heaven, whom I saw only in pain at that time. I delighted in no other heaven than Jesus who shall be my bliss when I come there. And this has ever been a comfort to me that I chose Jesus for my heaven by his grace in all this time of suffering and sorrow. And that had been a learning for me that I should evermore do so, choosing only Jesus for my heaven in well and woe. This um, idea of the cross being this anchor in good times and bad and that she has this realization in the, in a deep moment of suffering on her part. Um, but she learns through this and through processing it afterwards that the cross is this anchor point to which she must always turn again in, in well and in woe that just as Christ is a comfort in times of trouble that when she looks to the cross, so also in times of prosperity, in times of spiritual comfort, she needs to turn to the cross because that is the source and the summit, um, the, the axis around it, which everything turns. That, and this is something that I need to remind myself of that it is both in well and in woe that we fix our eyes on the cross. You know, I, not to cite AA again, but that is where a lot of my early like spiritual asceticism kind of took it, took its root. Um, but you know, my, my sponsor used to say like, you don't stop going to meetings when things are going well. Um, because that is your anchor for when things are bad. And I, I think it, that sort of concept kind, kind of imports to this sort of language where you don't look away from the cross when things are going well. If anything, that is when you need to gaze, fix your gaze most fervently on the cross. Because... If you look away from the cross when things are going well, you won't be looking at the cross when things are going poorly, and you will be buffeted by the waves of life. And so this lesson that Julian is giving to us, that we should evermore choose Jesus for our heaven in well and woe, I think the advice my sponsor gave me a few years ago has resonance with that, that it is you, you look to your anchor even, or especially when you feel secure because that anchor is the source of that security, that the cross is the source of our spiritual comfort. And so even when we are, in a time of consolation, of spiritual richness, we need to look to the cross because that's where it's all coming from anyway. And that is where we need to turn 
when the times of desolation come. Amen. It is the cross is everything. It it just is. It's the moment. It is the the time. It's the it's the meaning of everything in our faith. It's the meaning of any everything. Period. It's it, it distresses me when people shunned it aside for other aspects of our uh, of our of our faith or our, of our tradition. One time years ago, in 2013, as a matter of fact, and this was that's a long time ago now. Um, I decided that I I needed to know what I should take from the passion of Christ. What was you know what was there for me, and so I prayed to Jesus. And this was during Lent, and so I was going to Stations of the Cross every Friday night, which we have at our church. And so I prayed to Jesus that would please just tell me or show me or give me some kind of hint for crying out loud of what this passion of yours was all about. What does it mean to me? What, how can I, what, what is it? And so I'm going through the stations, all 14 stations, and I'm thinking about this and just basically being open to it, not, not trying to like figure it out rationally or anything. And I was just, overcome with so much joy i it just i just felt like i was bursting with grace and gladness and that is that what i took that was that that's what the passion is for me it's everything it's everything i could possibly ever want and the fact that it's the fact that it takes place in suffering and death and misery and horror just just makes the suffering and the death and the misery and the horror that's around us it makes it it makes it different it gives it a light i and and honestly this is again here i am again but i'm i'm saying something that probably nobody really likes but that's that's what happened to me in 2013 during lent Thank so the you. notion of being uh, anchored to the cross, both in good times and in bad, is, it seems to me, uh, the beginning point of saying that there's something to the spiritual life about a certain degree of detachment from what's happening. Um, so Martin Laird is an Augustinian friar, uh, and he's written this book called um into the silent land and it's it is uh, my favorite book about silent contemplative prayer practice uh i think it's fantastic um and i would love to have him come and be a guest on this podcast at some point he can share with us his insights but so he's an augustinian friar and a professor at villanova university just outside of philadelphia um and he has this metaphor in Into the Silent Land, where he talks about how we are on the holy mountain, and we tend to get distracted, as would happen if you were to be hiking on a mountain, we get distracted by the weather. We focus on the rain, or we focus on the sun, or we focus on the wind, or 
we're in the sunshine and it's a beautiful day, but we see the clouds on the horizon. And so we worry about the clouds. And he said, so this is that the weather is like our anxieties and our emotions and, you know, the day to day, um, what we are feeling and experiencing from moment to moment or day to day or week to week. Uh, but the, the, the thing is that our, Attention is supposed to be on the mountain, not on the weather. The mountain is really unchanging. Or if it does change, Mm -hmm. it changes over this vast scale. So the practice of contemplative prayer for him is to let go of our obsession with the weather and to constantly return our focus to the mountain. And in the same way, uh, with the emotional turbulence of our lives, you know, it's something that is a fruit of contemplative practice. I'm sure for the two of you, it is for me and it is for most people that I know who have some sort of contemplative practice, the realization that uh, the moments of excitement and fear and worry and anxiety and rage and all the other things we feel during the course of a day or a week or a year, those are all, they're like the weather patterns. They come and go. They're not, they're not reality. You know, they're the stuff that distracts us and that we fret over and try to analyze to death. But there's something deeper than that. And if we can get the voices to stop their chatter for a little bit, then we can begin to, um, to be a bit more grounded in the, the mountain and not the weather. Um, so where this connects to, I think, what Julian is doing here in chapter 19 is her realization that the the center of her life is a reality that is eternal and that is not her. It's not her life in good times or bad. It's not. It's not even her own experience of being ill as she is right now. This isn't about her current experience of her sickness. It's about her experience or how her temporary uh, moment of sickness, her unwellness, links her to the eternal uh, reality of the cross. So insofar as she's having one bad day, um, the, the bad day will be replaced with a good day later or, you know, a month from now or a year from now, there will be a good day again. But somehow this experience of being sick right now and seeing this cross in front of her face right now, how how tired is this curate's arm, do you think, from holding the cross up in front of her face? But um, Bless his heart. Yes. But it's his own suffering is uniting him to the cross of Christ as well. Um but so she is able to enter into an eternal reality that is beyond just what's going on in the moment, which um, is an experience that I've heard again and again whenever I'm reading some great mystic and they describe their mystical experiences, that there is a kind of a universal sense of timelessness. They all describe the sense of being lifted out of time itself and being taken into something that feels like eternity. You know, Marguerite has a a cat 
Just looking like that icon of Julian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just need a veil and you're already and dressed a in blue. Peaceful so. expression. <laughs> but I think, yeah, it's um the timelessness and I I love that image from Father Laird's book. Um that that is the the mountain versus the weather because it reminds me of the story where Jesus is asleep in the boat and mm. the, they're being tossed about by the waves. I read this recently. I don't know if it was in the daily office lectionary or what, but I, it's been on my mind um, because they're freaking out about the weather. I mean, understandably, it's scary. Um, I'd probably be freaking out too. And Jesus gets up and just stills everything. Um, And it just reverberates with those images of the Psalms answering the Psalms talking about the mountains answering to God and the, the great depths of the sea and that Jesus is this, this mountain in the midst of this weather. And in fixing our attention on him, the weather ceases to be threatening. Mm So that's when I when I think about Father Laird's image of the mountain and the weather, this that that parable or that pericope from the gospels comes to mind that there is there is a a, a more fundamental reality. That's not to say, and I think it's important to acknowledge that the weather is real, like it it does have an impact on our lives. It 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 does have emotional weight, um, but there is a f- more fundamental reality. There is something more constitutive of our beings, more, more stable, more real, that we need to fix our eyes on. And the mountain it's jesus in the boat it's the cross and that that i didn't know that was the carthusian model but it that's that's about that's what it all turns around she talks about the grouching and cursing of the flesh without agreement of the soul to which god assigns no blame yeah marguerite this is this is what you really wanted us to come to the the repenting and the willing choice. <laughs> Talk to us. What are your thoughts on it? Well, after thinking about it for a couple of days, I think, I mean, they didn't seem like opposites to me at first. You know, repenting versus willing choice. These These don't seem like opposites. But I think to Julian... What she's saying is that there are opposite ways of reacting 
to to the world, or I could even say to our sin. So for instance, when we repent, we're repenting for thoughts, words, and deeds that we have committed. And um, they're part of our fallen nature. And I think what she's saying is that God just kind of brushes that aside. But that our willing choice is a way of being, apart from all those grouchings and cursings that we do, our willing choice is to be completely in the power of God. Um, and it's, it's, it's a choice that we can make. I mean, it's not like we can get grace because we choose it, but we can choose to brush those repenting things aside. I mean, we should repent, but we, we don't need to live in a constant state of worry over sin. Like, oh, did I just sin just now by saying that, that word? Or did I, or did I sin just now by hanging up on that uh, scam caller on the phone or, you know, et cetera. And, oh, now I went a whole day without that sort of thing. But what we need to do is we need to have this, um, you have to give up an, that aspect of your life as the important part. The important part is the constant life with God, that your spirit is with God all the time. And that's, that's what I think she is talking about when she says the inward part is an exalted, blissful life, which is totally in peace and love. And this was more secretly experienced. And this part is that in which mightily, wisely, and willingly, I chose Jesus for my heaven. So mightily, um, courageously, I mean, she says mightily, I say courageously, wisely, yes, I agree with that, and willingly. So I think it takes some nerve to do that, to set aside that other part of our our worry, our, our thoughts, our thoughts, words, and deeds, you know, just focusing on what we're doing and how we're doing. And whether we're better than we were yesterday, et cetera, et cetera. What we need to do is just simply live in God. And I think that's what, that's where I come, come with that. So I think, yes, I, I'm with you. Um, something that I was thinking about reading this section um, I think the the translation of the word opposites, and I actually didn't look at the Middle English, so I don't know what word she used there. So I should preface that before I blame that on translation. Um, but I think that language is unfortunate and that it makes us click into viewing these two as mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. as in opposition. Um, Whereas towards, I mean, in the last lines of this chapter, she talks about them both being united. So I think I'm reading this as 
two parts of conversion. Hmm. Um, the outward part and the inward part. And the outward part is not sufficient. That doesn't get us there. Um, that is a step. That is repenting, turning, turning away from the wrong is an important step and an, and a, an integral part of this conversion. Um, but you can turn away without turning to what you're supposed to turn to. And I think um, that's what she's getting at with the inward part, that it's, it's not just turning away, it's fixing your gaze on Christ. And that in, when those acts are completed, in, in the, when they're united, that is the bliss. That is where the bliss happens. Um, so I, I see her like saying like, and I think you're right in naming that kind of scrupulosity, that preoccupation with sin, that this, this constant um, fretting over, did I just sin, um, is symptomatic of having the outward, but not the inward. And I, so there, I, I, I live in that space a lot. Um, and so she's, she's beckoning us to, to say like, look, there's this, this outward part is, is good and important, but that's the inward part is the master and ruler of the outward. That that's this inward part is the more fundamental um, shift that needs to happen. Um, and that, that space, that conceptual space of understanding that you can repent without converting to, I mean, that's kind of sloppy language to plop onto this, but that you, you can turn away from the sin without turning to the grace, um, I think is important um, for us to combat Pelagianism. That like, okay, yeah, we, could, we, can, we can turn away from the sin. That's not the same thing as turning to the source of our being and the source of our salvation. We can, we can repent of racism, but that's not the same, or it's, it's not the same thing as turning in repentance and conversion to Christ to have that racism excised from our souls. Um, and so this, this kind of conceptual space that she clears, or I, if I'm reading her right, that she clears of you can repent and still not willingly choose. Um, I think it's, it's important for understanding sin in our lives and in our society. Because I think a lot of us live in that space a lot of the time. So in the Middle English, she says, repent. In this translation that I have, which is, I don't know who the translator is in this, but it's the Classics of Western Spirituality series. Um, it says, reluctance. And Mirabai Star's translation says, regret. Mm. Um, but it's repent. Repent in the in uh, in the Middle English. What does she have for opposites? I'm interested to. Do you uh, have it pulled up? Um, 
Jeopardy music. <laughs> yeah. Repenting and willful choice be two contraries, which I felt both in one at that time. And though be two parties, that one inward, that other outward. That one mm-hmm. outward, that other inward. Uh, I'm sorry. It's pretty close. Yeah. So I've um, I've sat with this for a while, especially since Marguerite sent around the question saying, I really want to know what you think of this. <laughs> that I think... I think especially having seen reluctance in this translation and regret in Mirabai Starr's translation, um, I, I have, I have come to think that her regret is her regret that she expressed what two chapters ago, where she said, basically I regretted having asked for a share in Mm -hmm. Christ's suffering because now I understand that, like, it. Um, first of all, asking for suffering, suffering's not good. And um, it's presumptuous to ask for, for more suffering. The world has enough suffering in it. Why would I ask for more? Um, and... Uh, she what does she describe it as the as the grouching and cursing of the flesh that yeah suffering hurts and of course it's natural for us to push back against suffering and yet she says the other the other side of it is that she's committing to draw close to Christ so the tension is between f- for me at least that she on one hand, wants to avoid suffering. And that's natural. So do I. I would much rather stick my head in the sand, wrap myself in comfort and consolation and consumerism and keep getting fat and lazy and happy than confront the suffering of the world. But if she says the suffering of the world is how you draw near to God, confronting her own suffering, the suffering she sees around her, the suffering of the cross— if that's how you draw near to God, then she's going to make a conscious choice to pursue that good rather than to avoid the bad of suffering. That's the choice, I think, that she's making, that you can protect yourself as best you can from the bad, or you can pass through the bad on the way to the good. And she's choosing that path. Is how I see it. And I think that she, this thing uh, towards the end where she says that the the inward part is master and ruler of the outward, um, that she's saying that ultimately uh, it, it has to be a conscious choice of the will to say, that I am going to ignore whatever suffering comes my way. I, 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 maybe in a way she's saying, like, suffering is inevitable. So you might as well follow the path of suffering that brings you closer to Christ rather than following the path of suffering that is kind of kicking against the goats to bring us back to St. Paul. Um Anyway, that's that's where I was going with it. That this tension for her is is between like her reluctance to suffer and her realization that 
that love and wanting with Christ will have to take her into that land. Mm. I don't know. That's what I think. Mm. It's why it's important to read multiple translations of yeah. things. Yeah. Who did this translation? Edmund College, OSA, another Augustinian. Wow. And James Walsh, SJ. So he's a, a Jesuit and an Augustinian. So then in chapter 20, and thus I saw our Lord Jesus lingering a long time. And she gets into um, kind of comprehending that it's God suffering on the cross. Yeah. So there are three things that she holds up as like, as, as important meditations, uh, focal points for meditation around the passion. The first, well, the first is that the one who's doing the suffering is God. And then the second two that she calls lesser points uh, is that the one who is God is suffering. And then the one uh, is for whom he suffered. So there are these kind of three different facets of the passion that she's contemplating, but she thinks, yeah, that the most important one, the one that we need to spend the most amount, or at least we're going to spend chapter 20 on is that the one who's doing the suffering is none other than God. I wonder uh, what Julian would think of the um, Jesus seminar. (laughs) (laughs) I think she would be baffled. (laughs) So do we want to get into chapter 20 or do we want to pick that up next time? I'll be honest. I don't know that I have much to say on chapter 20. I was struck by the fact that where she says, I'm trying to figure out where to begin here, because he that is most exalted and most worthy was most fully brought to nothing and most utterly despised. Hmm. So, you know, I've, you always hear of the, the pain and the suffering of Jesus on the cross, but the fact that people hated him is just, just really struck me this time. Mm. And, and for me, where she says, you know, it is who he who suffered was God. God was in pain. God was in torment and God was hated despised now there is i don't think that i don't know i don't know but it just seems to me very odd that somebody would say i hate god but here are these this is what this is what was happening and what is the meaning of that 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 god was hated by this vast mob of people it just 
it struck me that that's part of our calling too. How so? To be hated? Blessed, blessed are you who are persecuted for justice sake. Mm. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's, I guess, you know, I guess I took that step over there. Mm-hmm. But, and I, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't think too many people hate me. And I don't think too many people hate either of you. But I think that they're, I think it, okay, Jane, I think it's okay to realize that when you are pushing, pushing this life of oneness with God, that, that people won't like that. The people, people will want to have other answers. Will have, will want to have other ways of, of going out things. One of the things we were talking about on our clergy Zoom group, our, our our deanery meeting earlier this morning, was the experience that we've been having in nearly all the parishes around our portion of the diocese, where we've been saying things like, for the sake of the physical health of our weaker members, we are going to restrict our gatherings, we're going to insist on masks when we reconvene and worship. And we've had mostly supportive statements, but we've had we've all had people who have just been filled with rage that we the church are buying into this, you know, liberal lie of covid. Mm. And then, you know, with all the stuff that's going on with uh with our latest flare-up of awareness of racism, that the people who are preaching about that are mostly meeting with support, uh, but also with a certain amount of uh, resistance. Um, And so, yeah, whenever, uh, you know, you, you can't satisfy everybody. And, um, and I think, you know, Jesus uh, suggested that that was going to be the destiny of his movement, certainly the destiny of his life. But um, I was reflecting on it the other day when uh, in John chapter 6, when he says, you know, if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And people said, wait, what? That's cannibalism. And some turned away. And he turned to his disciples and said, are you also going to turn away. He had no interest in dumbing down his message or or softening things or saying wait 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 we can compromise we should, we can negotiate. He said this is this is this is the truth and you either like it or you don't. Thomas mm-hmm. says where else can we go lord you're the one who has the words of eternal life. Um but I guess it's the side effect. I was I was talking to someone yesterday who was coming to me, you know, another priest who's out in Oregon who's uh, really wrestling with, like, what to do with, like, the prevalence of injustice and the fact that it 
it never seems to go away. And, you know, she's preaching the same sermon this last week that she preached, you know, a year ago and two years ago and three years ago and four years ago, the last time that this happened, the last time there was police violence and the last time there was racism and the last time there was a lynching. Um, And I found myself in the middle of the conversation saying that injustice done by humans to other humans is an inevitable side effect of the free will that God has given us that allows us to love that if God has trusted us with the ability to love that God has also trusted us with the ability to withhold that love. And if you give humans a power, they will use it. (laughs) So somehow part of the Christian work, part of the spiritual work is to realize that until Christ comes again in glory and, and removes our free will because everything is set right, injustice is going to be part of the story. The cross uh, stands while the world revolves around it. The cross as a symbol of execution is, you know, is, is going to be with us. Um, so it seems like a big part of the work that we have to do is to, uh, never be satisfied with it, but never to be surprised by injustice showing up again and again and again. Um, I don't know where that goes with chapter 20. I kind of went off on a tangent. (laughs) It's a good tangent. Uh, Being despised. So one of the things that Teresa of Avila says in the beginning of her um, uh, way of perfection, and I'm totally pulling the quote out of my brain, so I'm not going to get it right. But she says, basically... It's right at the very beginning of the way of perfection. She says, basically, like, Lord, you have so many enemies out there. You know, it's, uh, it is my calling to be your friend because you have so many enemies. So maybe um, part of Julian's vocation, maybe the vocation of any Christian who's called to it, um, is that, you know, knowing that Christ is going to be, he that is most exalted and most worthy is always going to be utterly despised by someone, that to counterbalance that, we can be the best friends that we can. Uh, and, you know, I can't stop people from hating God, from despising Christ, or uh, even from crushing God's creation. I can't, I don't have that power in me to stop it. Um, but, but, to resist it, but to be his friend and to, to keep doing our best. Um, and with them that were his friends to suffer pain for love, as she says in chapter 18, to be his friend, to be fully one with him. And so to, 
be one with him in his pain. Yeah. Solidarity and yeah. pain. Yeah. <laughs> so have we resolved the mystery of suffering <laughs> for, for another week? Well done. <laughs> yeah. As long as he was able to suffer, this is towards the end of chapter 20, as long as he was able to suffer, he suffered for us and grieved for us. And now he is risen and no more able to suffer, yet he suffers with us still. Eternal. Yeah. So, the suffering that we are all going through, the three of us, the world around us, our communities, our brothers and sisters, uh, our siblings, I should say, our siblings around the world, um, let us be friends with the one who suffers with us and not despise him. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. All right. thank you for listening to this episode to find out more about dame julian the revelations of divine love the order of julian of norwich or us check the show notes to this episode you can reach me chris arnold the producer of this series at apple tree pods on twitter or on facebook you can find the page apple tree podcasts that's all for now we'll talk to you soon May God bless you.